Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. A lot to talk about on today's show, so I want to get right to it. Well, before I do, nope, I do want to make one announcement for you. Um, it, about a week or so ago, uh, GPB uh, opened a brand new website, launched our brand new website, which had been worked on for a very long time. It really looks terrific. It's got a lot more content, and I think in the long run you're going to find it very useful. Um, In the meantime, there have been some issues with how uh, our show uh, is getting uh, put out digitally once we're off the air. So some of the places where you might uh, look for us on a podcast, uh, you should find the show. I've been getting notes from some people who tell me that descriptions of each show are suddenly not showing up. Uh, I got a message from a couple of other people saying that we were having the same problem on when they wanted to listen to the show on the website. We're aware that there are some things that need to be worked out, and I ask for you to just be as patient as possible. In the meantime, it's been a great transition for us, and uh, we're really pleased for the most part with the results. So I just wanted to mention that because I've heard from enough of you about it that I thought you deserve to know we get it, and uh, we're trying to resolve all the issues we have. With that in mind, let's go right to the panel. It's Thursdays, which means the the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley, graces us with his presence. How you doing, Kevin? Well, you know, uh, despite that over-the-top introduction you always give me, I have to tell you, this is, as it turns out during this pandemic, one of my favorite hours of the week every week. So I'm glad to be here. Good to see you. Looking forward to the discussion today and always love uh, what I hear from listeners uh, of the show. Well, Kevin, I I mentioned you as the boss because it also means that you're the guy I turn to when I hope to get something resolved. Can you please tell me why every time I now open a web page to read a story online, uh, I get this little thing popping up asking if I want the newsletter before and I have to close that before I can actually read the content? Phil, that's because you may be our single, you may be our single most user, uh, uh, important user at AJC.com, and we don't, we never want to let you forget how much you mean to us. I, I, I just, uh, I just had to give you a little bit of a, of a shot about that one, but uh, Kevin, thank you for being here, of course. Uh, Karen Owen is back with us, Professor Karen Owen, who, Professor of Political Science at West Georgia. University. We're glad to have you back. You took a little time just for your family over the summer. Karen, what a what a rare and wonderful thing to do. Good for you. Was it great? It was very nice, very relaxing. Um, it was great to just interact again and spend quality time with the family. Yes. Good. Well, we're glad to have you back. And you start class, you say, I guess next week sometime, toward the end of next week? Yes, next Thursday is my first day back in the classroom. In-person classes. Yes, in person. I will be there with my 20 students, a total of 40, though, but split into different times. We'll be meeting. Well, 
Well, we wish you well. Uh, someone else will be back in the classroom pretty soon is Professor Audrey Haynes, Professor of Political Science at the University of Georgia, and uh, the person behind the Applied Political Science Program at UGA, which prepares students who want to go into careers in politics. When, when do you go back into the classroom, Audrey? Classes start on the 19th, but as it is uh, early August and all those, uh, you know, leases start, we have already started being inundated by students already. So we're seeing them Mm -hmm. downtown and in all the regular places. What's the mask usage like in Athens right now as you go see uh, students downtown? Are they wearing them? Well, if you had seen my Facebook post yesterday, you would have seen me post a line of students with no masks blocking my way to my food. So I had to go around. Mm. I was laughing at how petrified I actually was by walking through such a crowd of, I called it, uh, virus vectors. You you know, this is such a dilemma. Um, It's kind of this strange time. Nobody wants to be an angry scold. But, Audrey... When you saw that, didn't you really want to just even politely say, why aren't you wearing masks? Please wear masks. I go through that the rare occasions I go out, but it's a hard thing to figure out how to deal with that. It is. I I sometimes, you know, I'm a very non-confrontational, non-conflict-oriented kind of person, so I'm more diplomatic. And it's hard when you're wearing a mask and you're looking at a large group to say anything. There's this fear. Um, I developed that fear in middle school of large groups of young people. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that that should come from a, a, a source. And I think in Athens, prior to the conflict about the mask mandate, Uh, You saw a lot more people wearing masks, but now uh, we don't. Even the people who were, uh, you see some of them walking around without them. So without that sort of top-down and and, uh, uh, signaling and message, it's hard to get through. And and my argument is a lot of those young people either aren't thinking about it or they don't want to look uncool. They don't really have the context or understanding. And they think they're outside and walking around. So, All right. Um, well, I wish you both you and Karen well when your classes uh, start up. We want to introduce a new panelist to uh, Political Rewind today. She is Riley Bunch. She is the Georgia State House reporter for CNHI News. Riley, welcome. You uh, represent uh, or you report to, you file for a number of uh, newspapers in Georgia. What, what newspapers are part of that, that group? Uh, we have newspapers from Dalton Daily Citizen up north all the way down to the Valdosta Daily Times and everywhere in between. We have about six rural newspapers that I send to in Tifton and Thomasville and Moultrie and Milledgeville. So it's a good time, you know, sending stuff to areas of the state that might not otherwise get coverage. And, and how long have you been with them? And what was your path to getting to them? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Just give us a quick uh, uh, rundown on who you are. Absolutely. So I've been in Georgia a little under a year. So thank you for having me on this star-studded panel. I hope I can offer a little bit of insight. I was previously at a newspaper in Idaho, the Idaho Press, um, before this job. But I grew up in Seattle, and I attended Syracuse University for undergrad. So been all over the place. Okay, good. Good. 
Well, let's say we want to just a little about you uh, as the show gets underway. Welcome. Kevin Rather, let me very quickly, we're, we're going to start, we've got a lot of politics to talk about, but very quickly, it's apropos of um, my asking Audrey about masks on campus. Uh, we've unfortunately reached a milestone in coronavirus cases in Georgia uh, as of yesterday. We now have more than 200,000 uh, cases of COVID-19 and we're about to hit another milestone, a sad one, 4,000 deaths. There, there is, and, and you know, Kevin, when I look at how states are dealing with the virus and the number of cases, unfortunately, Georgia is number five in terms of most cases in the United States. We're far behind the states that are one through four. Nevertheless, we're in the top five. And, and so this virus, Kevin, is still very much with us. You know, one of the things that I think is happening, though, when people look at Georgia, talk about Georgia, think about Georgia, they use it as the example of maybe many of the things that appear to have gone wrong with the pandemic, where, you know, it was pretty rough at first, measures were taken to settle it down, state opened backed up, and, and, and now we just have a very steady but high level of hospitalizations, of deaths, of new cases. And until that, those kind of numbers change, we are not going to be out of this pandemic. And I think you can watch Georgia as a pretty good barometer of the country where it hasn't been quite as extreme as it's been up and down in other places. But it's a very steady and troubling problem. And it's particularly troubling when you think about, you know, this is a state where the CDC is and where one of the leading um you know, medical center, academic medical centers is, and it's just uh, hard to understand how we can't figure our way out of this. We had 3,765 new cases reported by the Department of Public Health yesterday, a seven-day rolling average of 3,300 or more. So uh, it does continue a steady beat forward. All right, let's uh, start talking about the uh, news of politics today. Raya, let me bring you in uh, for this conversation uh, right away. Uh, Governor Kemp, we weren't sure. Uh, yesterday was the final day that Governor Kemp could act on bills. Um, and uh, there were a couple bills that were under a spe- special scrutiny. Probably the most uh, significant one being House Bill 838. This was a bill which um, essentially added protections for police officers who were in some way either physically attacked or were abused in some way uh, uh, by citizens. It, and, and the background of it, quite simply, is it, it was introduced at the same time uh, during the session after the, the virus shut things down when the session started again, when there was a really strong push to get the hate crimes bill passed in the Senate. Um, uh, coming out of the, and, and there was reason for it suddenly, uh, here in, in Georgia, Ahmad Arbery, uh, Rayshard Brooks, all these things were happening, George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so part mem- some members of the Senate didn't want a hate crimes bill without this added protection. Talk about how they um, maneuvered through this controversy. Yeah, absolutely. So lawmakers who wanted a hate crimes bill in Georgia were not going to get it without a show of support um, for police as well. So this police protection bill was not new when it was um, 
showed as a separate bill itself, uh, an amendment to the original hate crimes legislation was pushed through a Senate committee um, that added police to the list of protected classes within the hate crimes bill. Uh, this put a, a sour taste in a lot of the mouth of lawmakers and activists who wanted the hate crimes legislation passed because they said it kind of undermined the reason behind the hate crimes. But Senate and Republican lawmakers were not gonna push this without a show of support for police. And we knew Governor Kemp was gonna sign this. He came out with a, a video message during the protests in support of police. But the, the, the tricky situation was that that this legislation was drafted very quickly. It was pushed through the chambers very quickly. And now we're coming out on the other side with this signed into law legislation um, that could potentially end up with a lesser charge for someone who is found of what is they coined it as bias motivated intimidation of a police officer um, than a regular crime committed. Um, so this is the problem that we're seeing with this police protection bill as it stands. But like I said, Governor Kemp signed it yesterday and it's into law and now they'll only have a chance to fix some things, you know, when we come back next session. You know, Bill Riley, I think, has that exactly right. I mean, we all know when the legislature moves quickly and at the last minute, uh, they're not quite as, um, let's just say, uh, precise or um, uh, perform as well as, as we would like. Uh, Republicans were absolutely determined to, to demonstrate uh, support for the police. So now we've got a bill that says, look, if someone, you know, just to oversimplify, someone is responsible for the death of a first responder, the bill says they could face between one and five years in prison and up to a $5,000 fine. The problem with that is in Georgia, when you kill someone, you're looking at life in prison. So there's just confusion here, and they're going to have to straighten that out. Um, but I, I, I think the governor felt, hey, I, I'm not going to veto some bill and look as if I'm not supporting police. Um, it's it, Karen, one of the things that's interesting about this, not only is there this strange uh, uh, contradiction here where if this law is followed completely, uh, it, it is possible for somebody who kills a police officer to get a much lesser sentence than she or he would if it was just uh, it was not part uh, of if the uh, uh, case were not brought under the new law. Uh, but there's also some constitutional questions about this as well. And, and the ACLU has made it clear it's going to pursue them. Uh, you, Karen, may not have had a chance to look at uh, the cases themselves, but I can, I'd, I'd love your reaction. In 1974, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case uh, uh, in New Orleans, struck down a city ordinance that made it a crime for any person wantonly to curse or revile or to use obscene language toward or with reference to a city officer. The court said a properly trained police officer may reasonably be expected to exercise a higher degree of restraint than the average citizen. Um, a number of years later, uh, the court struck down a Houston ordinance that made it a crime to oppose or interrupt any police officer in the performance of his duties. So, I mean, on one end, yes, if you kill a police officer, you're going to face uh, justice one way or the other. But when it comes to, uh, you know, yelling obscenities at a police officer, maybe spray painting a, a police car with an obscenity or whatever, uh, it's question. The courts, you know, have already said that they may not, uh, we may not be able to uh, uh, legally uh, uh, deal with that sort of thing. Yes, and I, I think in this situation, right, we're at a time where we have politicians who need to make a stance to protect the police because they are 
guaranteeing and protecting us with their public safety endeavors. But I think it is hard when we see these politicians acting quickly to make that stance and not thinking about the unintended consequences that come. So here in Georgia, it would have made sense, you know, to take a little bit of a step and make sure that whatever they're writing at this time into law is also going to match up and and be um, in line with the code of other statutes and as well as to make sure that they're not stepping on something that can be overturned in a court case. Um, and it's hard because politicians want to react at the moment, but it is imperative that they actually think about what will then be the consequence or the actions that come from these laws that they are passing. And I would follow up with uh, what uh, Dr. Owen said, in, and that is that um, it's an election year, and the election is three months from now. And um, I would think that part of this uh, passage, while some of it is probably uh, honestly uh, presented because there are real concerns about protecting police. There's also cover. If you're in a district, for example, um, I'm sure there are some direct mail pieces that are going out to some of your constituents that say, I voted for the hate crimes bill. And then there is a direct mail piece that's going out to the constituents in other areas saying, I voted to protect the police. It gives them cover. It's uh, symbolic. And my guess would be that until they do iron out those potential problems that you're not going to see a lot of cases brought up to uh, on this because uh, there's the, the real question of ramifications for that. So, And it does seem to involve um, bodily harm and damage. So things like just yelling and spitting or whatever, I don't think are covered, but I haven't really had time to sit down with the, the law. I, I th thank you for saying that because I was just looking to see uh, if if they if there were things covered that had to do with you know obscene comments and that sort of thing and if some of our listeners out there can tell me I'd appreciate that uh, because if if there if those things are not part of it then those ca court cases that I mentioned may not have any applicability in terms of this situation um, I'm just kind of getting up to speed on this but Kevin one last thing on this. I mean, it, we talk about how this sort of thing becomes a partisan uh, tool in the midst of an election year, but um, I don't think anyone argues that we don't want to see police officers uh, protected in, in doing their jobs, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or a conservative. Uh, I, I, it's unfortunate when this becomes purely partisan, so that people who don't like this law are viewed as being uh, perfectly fine with police officers being attacked. I don't think anyone wants that. Yeah, I think you're right, Bill. And that's that's been a big challenge with all of what's happened lately uh, around the country. As we've talked about on this show, you know, the truth is, is that a minuscule percentage of uh, police officer interactions with the public go badly. And most people know their poli the police officers uh, in their towns and neighborhoods because most police departments are very, very small. It's in the big urban situations where things can get harder. But yeah, I think most people believe police should be respected and allowed to do their jobs. Okay. Uh, Riley, I want to go back to you. Uh, maybe you thought that you were finished with covering the legislature this year after that odd session, which started before the virus took hold, was interrupted by the virus. They came back and finished it up the final 12 days. And you thought 
Well, that's that for this year. Not so fast. Governor Kemp has now made it clear he is calling a special session, ostensibly because he needs to make some fixes to the Hurricane Michael relief package that farmers across the state of Georgia really do need quite desperately. Um, But we should say that when a special session is called by the governor, only the governor can set the agenda, what items will be discussed during that special session, and he certainly can expand what he wants to have the legislature look at. So there's a lot of conversation about what might really be the motive for wanting to call legislators back to the Capitol in the midst of a pandemic And there are some people who think it might have more to do with the fight he's having with Keisha Lance Bottoms. But talk about this a little. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. I think we all were a little sigh of relief when the session did finally end after the hiatus for so long. But, yes, this news of a special session and the the – the idea that it is going to, you know, is for this hurricane relief package. I think that is very, very important, especially to rural Georgia and rural farmers who are suffering and have not gotten all the aid still since the hurricane 2018 that they were promised. Um, but like you said, you know, the governor can pull up kind of, you know, whatever he wants for this agenda. Um, I don't think I may not be the best person to speak to the airport since I don't cover Metro Atlanta, but possibly some other things that may be looked at. Um, I think that could be COVID liability protections. Um, Still, I know that was a heated debate at the end of the session, um, whether there's protections for businesses and um, if a customer contracts COVID, I think that could possibly be brought up again. Um, But yes, the governor, he has the ability to choose what he wants on the agenda for this session, and I'm looking forward to be yeah. back at the Capitol. Kevin, uh, Riley may have said the magic word, the Atlanta airport. Um, there is speculation that one of the things, given that he's in the midst of this feud with Keisha Lance Bottoms, that and, and given that he has never, ever spoken against an, a legislative effort to have the state take over Atlanta, uh, uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Air, Airport, uh, the question some people have in the back of their minds is he going to allow this to uh, come up in a special session as he continues his uh, fighting with, with the mayor? We, we don't know, but it's certainly something that your uh, political reporter, Greg Bluestein is talking about in a, in a piece in the AJC online today. Yeah, the governor has never publicly taken the position that he thinks it's a good idea for the state to take over the airport, which would be an incredibly complicated thing to do, although they could the state could maybe uh, set up some sort of oversight of of the airport. Um, We have reported that you know, privately in uh, uh, emails we, we got through the Open Records Act that he, he's been against it. But it did get attention when uh, there was something put into the National Democratic platform about uh, yep. this kind of thing uh, that I think the language says something like um, he, he, that Biden uh, opposes any power, partisan power grabs of public infrastructure projects. And that seems to speak directly to the Atlanta airport. It seems to speak directly to the influence that Mayor Bottom seems to have at a, a national democratic level. And as, as you know, I'm sure many listeners know, and, and anyone who's been in Atlanta for some time knows, that there's nothing that is more precious to the psyche 
of Atlanta and the leadership in Atlanta than that airport. You know, it is just seen as one of the, the great things. The legislature gets interested in this, particularly when there are corruption scandals or other things come up. Um, and I, I, I think maybe it'll just be a shot across the bow and it'll be that simple. The governor reminding the mayor that, you know, I am the governor and I do have certain power around here. Audrey, uh, we do need to point out, yes, Keisha Lance Bottoms does have some power with the Democratic National Committee. She was chair of the platform committee when they added uh, that uh, section uh, to it. So uh, maybe that's right. Maybe the governor is just firing back at her. You are. You are correct. And and that um, happens uh, fairly typically where different uh, levels of government will assert uh, their their power. Um, but I would also uh, venture that having a special sec- session of the legislature may be something that is needed, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic and there are issues that need to be resolved. So in some sense, um, the governor may be acting because he believes there needs to be some action and there may be some benefits to it in political benefits or power benefits. But there are also things that need addressing by the legislature. Karen? Yeah, so I want to you know piggyback on what Dr. Haynes just said there because and what she said earlier about this is election time, and so when he calls this special section special session, I think he would want to be very focused on what they're going to be uh, addressing, and if that is that hurricane relief package for those voters in rural Georgia, as well as thinking about the pandemic and the the leadership and actions that need to be taken right now, and maybe not trying to get in too big of a political play against the city of Atlanta, because he needs, I mean, the legislature in the House, there are seats that are up for grab in Metro Atlanta, and I think Kemp wants to ensure that the Republicans keep some of those seats moving on into the next session, and then maybe he can address that later on. But I would say that this special session, he might want to keep it much more focused helping to protect some of those legislators up for re-election in November. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. Uh, I've got to get to a break, but I love the fact that there are very few days that go by that I don't personally learn something as we're working our way through the show. Senator Jen Jordan just sent me an email with a, with a section of the bill we were talking about uh, uh, that protects police as a protected class, and she says... Yes, it does deal with uh, uh, any th- with things beyond physical violence. Uh, a peace officer shall have the right to bring a civil suit against any person, group of persons, organizations, corporation, goes on and on, for damages either pecuniary or otherwise suffered during the officer's performance of official duties, for abridgment of the officer's civil rights arising out of the officer's performance of official duties, for filing a complaint against the officer, which the person knew was false, when it was filed. So then the question is, uh, becomes the one that the ACLU brought up. Could this law, uh, in fact, run contrary to what the Supreme Court had ruled in a couple of cases uh, about local police uh, forces? I really appreciate Jen Jordan sending that uh, to us so that we could uh, really be aware of what was happening. Okay, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, Kelly Leffler just can't stay out of the news, and it's you know that may be a th- that may be something that she really, in fact, likes more than you think. This is political rewind.
The um, WNBA season got underway down in Bradenton, Florida. All the teams, much like the way the NBA is playing at one location in the state of Florida as well. So all the players on the WNBA are basically congregated at a, at a location together. And uh, on Tuesday, before the games, uh, a number of players came out uh, dressed in black T-shirts that read on the front, Vote Warnock. Clearly, there is anger about Kelly Leffler's attack on Black Lives Matter, on the fact that the WNBA has had a relationship uh, with Black Lives Matter. Um, Karen, uh, it, it, what's interesting about this is that in many ways, Brian Kemp named Kelly Leffler to that seat, we believe, because he thought a woman might help Republicans attract votes in suburban Georgia communities, uh, that she might, in fact, be someone women would appreciate. But she has chosen instead to move as far to the right as possible and align herself with President Trump. How do you read all of that? Give us your take on all of that. So first, I think you're right to point out that the Leffler appointment was definitely um, a gov- the governor's uh, ability to try to attract back the suburban women um, to help align and make a stance there. I think that Leffler in this, because she drew quickly an opponent from Doug Collins, felt like she needed to be very conservative to counter what he would be running. In the process, though, I think that she has to remember that that's part of the vote she still needs to attract. And, you know, just thinking about other issues right now that we're seeing, I think Black Lives Matter and then actually, you know, coming out in support of uh, the police or, you know, people not wanting to, you know, see the rioting. You know, people are okay with protesting, but seeing the rioting and going towards violence. We're seeing this as this is always dividing us. You have to be either on one side or either on the other side. And for a lot of suburban, I would say, women in Metro Atlanta, it's not an either-or. They do support the police and want to see that protection, but then they do also recognize that black lives do matter, that people matter. And so I think she has to thread a very, you know, and thread, thread the needle here as to how she plays. She can't be, you know, she needs conservative to get a lot of votes, but she also needs to appear um, that she understands the the issue and what really is driving these suburban women to think about those issues and how they will vote. So I'm going to um, just follow up and, and put on my applied politics hat and say that if I were talking to any practitioners out there, and I was actually talking to someone who um, is close to, uh, you know, the Leffler operation, and she is, I believe, channeling Governor Kemp during his election. He knew that he had to... Um, he had to appeal to a certain segment, and uh, and he was very disciplined. And I think Kelly Leffler is like that. We would see something very different if Collins was not in the race with this jungle primary. But right now, it is a campaign affair. It is operated by her campaign, and she is doing exactly what they are telling her. I think Audrey is exactly right. Um, and there's a saying in sports, in particular, when you're in a, a series of games you're trying to win, uh, wise people will say, win the game you're playing today, 
worry about tomorrow's game tomorrow. And I think it's a simple thing for Kelly Leffler. If she cannot be one of the top two in that jungle primary, nothing else matters. And so what she's doing, and Audrey's reference to what Governor Kemp did in his primary, is he, she is trying to say, look, there are whatever that number is in Georgia, at least 40 percent, I think, of people who are Trump supporters. If I can get 40 percent, I am going to be one of the top two people in that runoff, and then I'll figure out what to do after that. You know, Riley, I want to turn to you because I know you just did a long profile about Kelly Leffler, and, and I want to ask you about it. As I come to you, though, I, I do want to say what I think is interesting is I, I have talked to a couple of Georgia Republicans who high place people who've had high offices in Georgia uh, and people who have known Kelly Leffler. And what they say privately is they don't know this Kelly Leffler. Now, Kelly Leffler has always been uh, someone who was uh, much more moderate, who was a great believer in civil rights and human rights, who as part of the dream ownership team was perfectly uh, aligned with um, much of the WNBA's efforts at social justice. So they're, they're, finding, a, they're finding it odd that she's taken this uh, tack. But as Kevin says, uh, maybe that's the uh, way that she gets enough votes to get to the runoff. But but what did you find in your profile of her, Riley? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was just about to jump in and say, As we've seen this change in her messaging in her campaign. Like everyone on this panel said, she started out, she was um, hoping to gain, you know, the moderate voters that are looking to swing every, either way in this election. But she's had to change her messaging because she's no longer um, considered the most true conservative in the race. We have Doug Collins, who is now this national figure. People have seen him on the floor. He calls himself Trump's um, biggest defender. Um, and Kelly Leffler is having, having to go, you know, throughout Georgia, just fresh off her 14-county tour and kind of reiterate to Georgians that she can also be this true conservative. Um, and I think we see that in her messaging and her response to the WNBA, that she won't do this new um, phrase, that she's not going to be intimidated. And I think the the publicizing of the WNBA coming out against her, it even helps and strengthens her message because she gets another chance to stand up. Um, she said a quote in my interview that stand up for the Georgians who feel like they can't speak out right now. She, uh, you're, I think you're absolutely right. That was the, what I, I sort of was hinting at when we went to the break. Uh, this may seem to some people like not the kind of publicity you want, but of course, uh, every time we talk about this, Kelly Leffler, uh, conservatives are registering, oh, she maybe she's actually one of us. She doesn't like Black Lives Matter any more than we do. She talks about, I think she used the phrase in your interview, tell me if I'm wrong, Ryan, this is part of the cancel culture, which, of course, has become a really charged phrase that we're seeing from many Republicans across the country right now. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This this is this new new idea that, like I said, people may be on more of the right side of the spectrum, feel like they can't express their views. Um, so this not being intimidated, the standing up against cancel culture. It's how Senator Kelly Loeffler is trying to um, change the direction of her campaign to win over these extremely conservative voters. Uh, um, go ahead, Karen. 
I was just going to say that I think it's interesting that we see this is the new uh, campaign and politicking in the Trump era, which is not what we had, would have seen probably from a Senator Isaacson when he campaigned, very pragmatic, reaching out to voters, um, or even other, you know, even when Governor Deal, when he was running, you know, different ways of talking about their conservatism, but that pragmatic Feel. And I think we're just now running, the, the Republican Party's running so differently now, and Leffler's caught in that. Well, Karen, let me, I'm glad you brought up Nathan Deal, because I, I failed this time to introduce you in that context. Uh, you work for Nathan Deal up on the Hill, and I'm, so you saw a different Republican Party in many ways back when you were on the Hill. Um, have you watched it morph over the years compared to what Nathan Deal and the party were like when he was up there? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think there are, there's still a very conservative root that people have about the principles and ideas that they, that they think about government, but I think it's the way that issues are being discussed now. Um, you know, when I was working for Congressman Deal at the time, we were in the early 2000s, and there was coming off the the Newt Gingrich speaker and, you know, trying to revolutionize and change a little bit. But it was still a time of compromise, of working with the other party, not demonizing the other party on issues. And I think now we're just facing a different, a different time where the parties are very much, you know, grounded into what they're holding. And then if the other one doesn't see that, then they're going to call it out as being wrong and evil instead of trying to sit down and work together on that. Kevin, continuing this theme, uh, uh, Senator Leffler and Senator Tom Cotton have uh, introduced legislation that reinforces uh, this uh, sense that uh, Kelly Leffler wants to show herself as being tough on, uh, on crime, tough on, on people like Black Lives Matter. It, it's called the uh, uh, Holding Rioters Accountable Act of 2020. And in the news release that the Leffler folks put out, uh, the headline is peaceful protests have turned to riots across the country, destroying businesses and property. The quote from Leffler, what it would do is, this this bill is a political bill, obviously, and who knows if it goes anywhere at all. The House isn't going to pass it. Uh, The bill would grant authority to uh, William Barr, the attorney general, to reduce certain Department of Justice grants and funding to jurisdictions where state and local prosecutors are abusing prosecutorial discretion and failing to prosecute crimes arising from riots and other violent protests. And what the quote from Leffler is, in too many cities across our country, peaceful protests have turned into riots, leaving a trail of destruction to private property and federal buildings. Small businesses already hurting from the pandemic have had their hard work and livelihood destroyed by rioters who have smashed and looted. And uh, it goes on, she says, that prosecutors and local officials are turning a blind eye to this, obviously a reference to what happened, uh, for instance, in uh, Portland, she would say. Um, But, Kevin, there are conservatives and Georgia voters out there who look at Portland and say she's right on the money here. Yeah, I think she, you know, the very language of the bill title, the very language of the quotes they've included in her release about it, the quote they include from Cotton in the release, all speak to a certain segment of people. The very word riot, in a way, is a judgment, right? Because there were protests, 
some of those protests turned violent. You could characterize some of the extreme violence as rioting, certainly. But it's, it's a way of positioning uh, herself within all of this uh, unrest and unease in our country as um, appealing to people who are scared by it, scared by potential violence getting out of control. That's the position that she wants to take. It, it's noticeable that she does not address or say she is against, uh, you know, police who uh, go beyond where they should and kill people or something like that. It's all about the violence. And I do think that that speaks to a constituency that she has decided is who will help her make the runoff. As we get to a break, uh, Audrey, one last comment about this. It does, it does seem to me, and may, maybe uh, you've seen something different than I have, uh, Doug Collins, who has been a darling of Georgia conservatives, especially in his defense of the president in the Judiciary Committee, in the impeachment, uh, I do think Kelly Loeffler has driven him out of the uh, top news stories of, of the day for a while now. I mean, that's my perception, Audrey. I'm not sure you share it, but she seems to be getting the lion's share of attention as she uh, 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 you know, comes up with tactics like this. Well, well, that is part of the overall strategy, you know, new story, yeah. uh, not the old story. And she has done it. That's one of the reasons we've probably seen her poll numbers rise. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back more uh, with our panel on Political Rewind. Riley Bunch, uh, State House reporter for CNHI News, Georgia State House reporters with us, uh, prof- professors of political science, Dr. Karen Owen and Dr. A- um, Audrey Hayes are also with us, and Kevin Riley, the boss at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, so, Kevin, uh, as the uh, elections get closer and closer, less than 90 days away, uh, we're going to see, of course, the runoff election and how things go in polling places on, on that day, although we know turnout will be a lot smaller. But but especially as we point toward November, two counties in Metro Atlanta have now adopted diametrically opposite ways of dealing with absentee votes. DeKalb County, Kevin, has uh, decided they will send out request absentee ballot request forms to both active and, here's the key, inactive Voters, Raffensperger, Secretary of State Raffensperger's office has already criticized that, pushed back, saying, "Don't send them out to inactive voters. Uh, that's that's in, that's inappropriate." And DeKalb County says, "No, it's not inappropriate. They have a right to vote, uh, even if they haven't cast a ballot for five years." So there's a little fight brewing there. On the other side of the north end of Metro, Cobb County's commission. Uh, rejected a, a an appeal for funds from the Cobb County Election Board to send out absentee ballot requests broadly to all registered voters. So, Kevin, two counties doing it completely differently. Yeah, and I do th- think it shows how the concept of access to voting in the pandemic have been has also become partisan and polarized and difficult to talk about. Um, and just to, just to clarify, because I do think this is sometimes confusing for people, um, an inactive voter is someone who has had no contact with election officials for five years uh, because they either haven't voted or they haven't updated driver's license information, or they can be inactive if the mail they get from the election folks comes back. But they can still vote. 
I mean, it's not as if they can't show up and vote. So um, it, uh, it does become a question of uh, uh, um, what is this going to be like and um, with this conversation at the national level about absentee versus voting versus showing up in person, where are people going to land and how much turnout will there actually be? Well, I want to follow up on what uh, Kevin said because, um, you know, an inactive voter is a registered voter. And I believe that when the Secretary of State sent out all those absentee ballot request forms, they were sent to 6.9 million registered voters, which would have included some of those inactive ones. So the Secretary of State's office has actually done that. Now, with Cobb County and DeKalb County, um, Cobb County, remember, had that gaffe where the County Board of Elections sent out absentee requests to all of those 60 and over, and the state did it too. Um, so there were about 130,000 people that got double, and it caused some confusion. So maybe Cobb County is thinking about the cost, and, and that may happen, or maybe they anticipate the state doing something. So that might explain some of it. But this distinction between active and inactive voter is really one I think that we should uh, stop talking about quite so much. If you're registered to vote, you should be able to vote and get an absentee uh, ballot request form. Yes, and I was going to say, Audrey makes a, a great point there, and, and Kevin did too, about these are registered voters, and so you are touching the registered voter. I would be curious to know how DeKalb County, as well as any county that has this list of inactive voters, how they're actually reaching out to them within that five-year period. You know, once once you have not been active for five years, you can't be removed from the registration list for another two years. You have to, you know, you can still vote, you can still have contact. And, and I would just beg the question, what has the state and or those counties been doing to reach inactive voters? Because some of these inactive voters may have already moved to other counties. Um, that does happen. And so I think that in all of this mail-in ballot, absentee ballot discussion, it doesn't need to be a partisan discussion. It needs to talk about you know, we're trying to get people to vote and that we also want to ensure that there's integrity in the election that we have. Riley? I would say Ed, Kevin made a great point when he first started. It was the absentee ballot process in Georgia. It started out as a solution to the issue of the pandemic and the health issues ahead of the presidential primary. Democrats were on board with this decision, and it has really devolved into, um, you know, the partisan conversation that is coming from the national level. And we see that in the different ways that the counties are handling the absentee ballot. Audrey, you want to jump back in real quick? Really quickly, I just wanted to follow up and say that the Secretary of State's office has done, I think, um, and I think most objective people will say they've sort of gone above and beyond because they have done a lot of things in anticipation and they still are doing them um, more so than many uh, states. Well, okay, so one very quick comment about this, Kevin. Uh, you know, absentee balloting, which seems to work better for, for voters in a pandemic, I understand why there's so much enthusiasm about it. At the same time, when you look at what happened in the congressional race, Carolyn Maloney's congressional race in New York, where they were overwhelmed with absentee ballots, a count went on weeks before they could fi finally confirm that Maloney had held on to her seat. You can at least understand why, if we're going to have enormous numbers of absentee votes, the counties have got to be prepared to deal with them. And the Secretary of State's office has got to come up with rules that make it easier to get those counted, like perhaps pre-counting before Election Day. 
I agree. You know, Bill, I had a chance to talk to Mark Nisi, who covers all this stuff for us yesterday. And um, I think that the counties are working hard. They're trying to straighten things out. But, you know, the turnout for the presidential election in November will be bigger than we think turnout has been for anything in a long time. And some of the problems, particularly in Fulton County, seem so deep and so complicated you really do have to worry that this will will be a mess, no matter how hard people on the ground are trying to fix it. Okay. Um, one last quick thing. While you've got the ball, Kevin, I'll keep this with you. Our friend Mark Roundtree of Landmark Communications, who's a Republican pollster and consultant, but also uh, polls for WSB-TV, and who we've said on many occasions is a very reputable uh, pollster who gets things right a lot, he just uh, did a poll for WSB about the Fulton County District Attorney's race, and it looks like that longtime incumbent, Paul Howard, uh, might very well be ousted by uh, Fonnie Willis, who is tracking like 47% of the vote to his 31%. He's, among other things, under fire for the way he handled the response to the shooting of Rayshard Brooks, going for an indictment before an investigation uh, was even uh, begun, basically, by the GBI. So it's going to be interesting to see how that election turns out next Tuesday. Yeah, and I think when you dig into those numbers, what you find out is that Howard's support among white voters is very low, and Willis has been able to attract that, and Howard's uh, really hang- trying to hang on to uh, black voters. So, I mean, he's been the DA for a long time, and this would be quite an upset in the end. Uh, not only is he under fire for the handling of uh, the, the uh, indictment of Garrett Rolfe, uh, it, it, it isn't, he's not under fire for, for the fact that he went after him. It's just that did he do it precipitously and with political motivations in mind. But, of course, he's also under investigation on a number of fronts for, by the GBI. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show, and I really appreciate the panel kind of, you know, like a, a little pinball going from one subject to the other Uh, on the show today. It was great fun to have you all here. Uh, Audrey Haynes, thank you for being with us. Karen Owen, great to have you back at the microphones. Riley Bunch, great first appearance. Thank you for joining us for Political Rewind. And uh, Kevin Riley, here we go. Come to the almost the end of yet another week. We're all continuing to live the pandemic surreal dream, aren't we? <laughs> we, we sure are. I, I, every week, uh, it, it's gotten to be feel normal to do the show remotely and to uh, not get a chance to see each other. But I am looking forward to the day when I can see you in that studio again. I feel the same way. All right. We are completely out of time. Thank you, Sam Burmes-Dawes, uh, for your work on the show today. Jesse Neiswanger, I think, is running the board for us this week. Thank you, Jesse. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.